On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. So I jump ship in Hong Kong, and I make my way over to Tibet, and I get on as a looper at a course over there in Himalayas. A looper? A looper. You know, a caddy, a looper. Jack. So I tell him I'm a pro Jack. And who do you think they give me? The Dalai Lama himself. The 12th son of the Lama. The flowing robes, the grace, bald. Striking. So I'm on a first tee. What am I giving the driver? He hauls off and whacks one. Big hitter, the Lama. Long into a 10,000-foot crevice right at the base of this glacier. Do you know what the Lama says? No. Gunga Galunga. Gunga Gunga Lagunga. So we finish 18, and he's going to stiff me. And I say, hey, Lama, hey, how about a little something, you know, for the effort, you know? And he says, oh, uh, there won't be any money. But when you die on your deathbed, you will receive total consciousness. So I got that going for me, which is nice. Hey, everybody, I'm Carl Dixon from Tony Hatch, and I have just had the pleasure of talking to Jay Scott on the Hook Rock podcast, talking about some great stuff. You want to tune in and hear this, baby. Take the wheel, I know you can. Run the road as fast as you can. Latest and greatest episode of the Hook Rocks podcast. I'm your host, Jay Scott, your tour guide along the way. Thanks for returning. Thanks for listening. We are part of the Pantheon Pod podcast network. We have some great fellow podcasters on the network as well, along with along with the Hook Rocks. We've got Cobras and Fire, Shout Out Loudcast, Carmen Apiece, Vinny Apice, Mistress Carrie, Martin Popoff, so many more to talk about, so many more to listen to. So check that out when you get a chance. Like and listen to us and follow us on any podcast platform. You can hit the subscribe button so you know when new episodes are coming out. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. It's greatly appreciated. Write us a review if you happen to like what you hear and want to give us some feedback. We always appreciate it. Thank you. 
And once again, we are offering an escape for you, whether it's music commentary, great interviews. We've had some really, really great interviews over the last few weeks. Hope you're enjoying all those. And our next guest is from the UK. Uh, One of the bands that I'm really excited about is this band called Empire. And they've got a new album. It's an acoustic um, interpretation of their music. And it's called The Other Side, which is a really intimate approach of their songs from the album Self-Aware. And if you haven't been able to pick either one of those up, I suggest you do. Uh, Just two great albums, two great approaches to the music. And really interesting, we're going to dive into that topic today because we have Henrik Steenholt, the lead singer from Empire, on the podcast today. What's going on, Henrik? How are you? Hello, Jay. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, I'm really excited about this. Excited to get to know more about you guys, you yourself, and you know where the music's going um, in the land of Empire. Okay, cool. Great. We always start out the same way, and that is the essence of the podcast. We always start the same way every time we have a new guest. And just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance that hooked you on rock and roll. What was it for you? I don't know that I can pin it to, to one, just only one specific moment. There, 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 are, there are two specific moments that spring to mind. So I'll kind of give you a, an overview. And one of them I can't exactly remember when it was. But um, I think the first one was oh, uh, probably when I was about 12 or 13 or so. And one of my friends was around at my house and he bought a cassette with him and it was Appetite for Destruction. And the first song I ever remember hearing, I'm sure we listened to it from the beginning, but the first song that I ever remember from that album, uh, really kind of like, oh, this is kind of cool, was Mr. Brownstone. I don't, know, I don't remember what it was about that, but I just remember Mr. Brownstone being on, and maybe I asked him, well, what's this song called? Um, so that was that was one moment, and from that was at a time when I didn't play guitar and I hadn't started learning, and, and then the second time must have been, I think, 1992 or 1993. Again, another friend came around my house. He just got back from Belgium with his parents on holiday, and for some reason out there, he picked up the 10 album by Pearl Jam. And it was like, you just, you just got to listen, just got to listen to Alive. You do need to listen to, to this track. And from the first moment that I heard that guitar riff, I was like, wow, <laughs> I want to play that riff. Um, and, and those were two the moments that, yeah, sprung into my head that, that, that always remind me of like why I got into doing what I'm doing now. Those are two monster albums, two monster bands. I mean, Mr. Brownstone, you can consider a deep cut on appetite but alive for the most part was the world's introduction to pearl jam and you know yeah. everything that came after that um you know very unique time and period of music because guns and roses and appetite was even though it, it was kind of in the middle towards but it was towards the end of that whole glam movement and they brought more of like a stones sleaze feel to that style back then and then in just a few years the scene had totally changed and then you have the grunge movement with Pearl Jam very very two different styles and that's very very unique because you don't hear a lot of artists being influenced by both 
Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I, I can sort of go the, the other way to perhaps like before Guns N' Roses when uh, I wasn't really listening to rock at all. I just listened to 80s pop music and my brother started listening to Dire Straits and um, I'd borrow his albums or, or, or you know copy them onto a cassette and, and listen to them that way. So I kind of started on that slightly softer guitar-based Rock, but again, I don't exactly remember when that that was. It may have been around the same time as same time as Guns and Roses when I kind of picked those guys up. But yeah, I, I don't know. I've never really separated. To go back to what you said, I've never really separated um, that way of thinking. That kind of oh well, this is Guns and Roses, and this is this is dirty sleaze rock, and this is Pearl Jam, and this is grunge. To to me at the time, you know, music was music and whether it was Axel or Eddie or whether it was Slash or, uh, you know, Stone Gossard and Matt McCready, it, it didn't make any difference to me. If I liked it, I, I liked it. And I don't, I, I don't even think I was particularly aware of genres at that point. It was just like, this is another guitar band and it sounds cool and the singer sounds amazing. So this is just great. That's the way I approached it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Because now as you look back on that period of music and that transition, I don't separate them anymore. I did when I was younger, right? I did, you know, because that's what you did when you were a kid. You know, you had the hard rock, and then all of a sudden you had Pearl Jam and Nirvana and all these bands coming out that were totally different. But now I have such an appreciation for Pearl Jam, and I grew up, you know, listening and in 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 watching Guns N' Roses. But I no longer have that feeling to separate the two styles. I think they're both hugely important to rock music and immensely influential to so many artists. And there's also a connection with both bands. And Duff McKagan came from Seattle and was part of the punk movement that evolved into that quote-unquote grunge movement that we later saw, you know, with the bands we just mentioned, including Pearl Jam. So it's a unique, you know, connection with both bands that maybe not a lot of people are aware of. No, I mean, Duff McKagan's, Autobiography. I've been listening to over the course of the pandemic. I've been listening to quite a few audio books, and uh, his. Is, I've got it on Audible already. I'm I'm, I'm waiting to listen to, to Duff's. I've read Slash's autobiography, but I, I haven't got to that one yet. So I don't know. You know, I know the general history of Duff, but I don't know his roots and really where he came from. So no, I didn't know he was from from Seattle. Yeah, yo, check out that book. It's a it's an excellent book. He's a really interesting guy. I mean. You know, um, what he did after Guns N' Roses, you know, went back to school and did all these great things. You're going to have a you're going to really enjoy that book. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the next ones on the list. So where did it go from there? You know, you mentioned being influenced by Guns N' Roses and Pearl Jam and picking up a guitar. Was there a moment where you wanted to get on stage and be in a band? I guess I guess around that Pearl Jam moment was. Was, uh, at, at, so by the time yeah, the Guns N' Roses incident if you'll excuse the slight pun of the kind of spaghetti incident not that it was that but you know the Guns N' Roses incident happened a little bit before Pearl Jam so I don't think I was playing guitar then and then by the time Pearl Jam I'm pretty sure I, I picked up a guitar at that stage already but I had no idea how to play that that alive riff uh, I, I, I remember the time when I thought I'd worked it out it was wrong I uh, know, and I, I called up my friend who had introduced me to the CD, and I was like, "Damn, damn, I've worked it out!" and played it down the radio, uh, played it down the phone, 
he didn't sound that impressed because <laughs> it was wrong. Um, and then from it was the guitar I got into first, and then it was singing. So I think one of those situations where you're at school, there's a few other guys who play guitar, and everybody's playing guitar, and no one's playing bass, and no one's playing drums. And no one was really singing. So the first gig that I did was a school gig, and uh I think uh, the first song we ever played live was Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses. Um, and I think I shared like lead guitar duties with, uh, with, with one of my friends. I wasn't singing at that time. And um, I remember one other school gig we did maybe a, a year later. And at that point, um, we actually uh, were joined by two guys who we knew from another town and they played bass and they played drums. And we were going to play five songs uh, under the bridge with Chili Peppers, Plush by Stone Temple Pilot, uh, a song by another local band that, that no one will have ever heard of, uh, Alive, and I think we did Black as well by Pearl Jam. And I remember the first time we had the, we had a practice about two hours before we went on. That was our first ever practice together. But I remember the first time when the bass and the drums came in when we played Alive, and it was like, oh this is a band. This sounds like a song. This is amazing. <laughs> and by that stage I was singing. I, 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 I'd taken on that, that, uh, that role. So, um, I was, yeah, playing guitar and singing and, and that was, that, that was pretty ama- amazing. And then from, from there, you know, in and out of bands for a, for a few years until Empire started, which is a, a, a good 15 years, at least between those two incidents between Empire starting and, and that moment when we first played alive as a, as a whole band. How did you find yourself singing? I mean, you, you obviously picked up the guitar, um, and then all of a sudden you found yourself as the vocalist of, of the band, of your of your earliest band, and then, you know, you you went in that direction. And what was it? What was the beginnings of that like? Well, the the inspiration was from really being. Um, inspired by the likes of Axel, uh, Eddie Vedder, um, Chris Cornell, Scott Wayland, uh, even like John Bon Jovi and, and plenty of other people. And uh, when we did that first gig where we played Welcome to the Jungle, I think we did Welcome to the Jungle and maybe Wild Horses by the Rolling Stones. And I'd considered singing that, but I didn't feel confident enough to sing Wild Horses. And then when two other guys did that, that that singing? I was like, well, they haven't done a good job. I reckon I can, I reckon I could probably do as good a job as that, even if it's not a brilliant performance. So then that kind of got me into to singing, and it was it really wasn't good to start with. I, I reckon, uh, I reckon there were a good two or three years where, yeah, I was pretty questionable on the on the singing front. Uh, but there, there was no one else who was necessarily any better, who was more inclined to do it. So um, I just got used to, to singing, used to hearing my own voice, had no idea how to do vocal warm-ups or anything like that, didn't know how to look after my voice. And uh, yeah, it just it, it, it went, went from there. I started to, to really enjoy it. I didn't want to put down a guitar. I'm not, a, I'm not the sort of front man that jumps around stage. So that's also kind of not the sort of band that Empire are. We, we, we rock out a bit, but... I'm not running around on stage. I'm not sort of jumping up and down. So um, I've always kind of kept the guitar. I like to have something 
to play most of the time so that otherwise I feel a little bit naked without it. I'm not quite sure what to do with myself. So, but that's basically how it started. When did the writing aspect come into play? You know, were you influenced by a song or a songwriter that you were able to connect with and, you know, motivated you or inspired you to write music? All, all of the people I've just mentioned were, were inspirations on that front as well. And with, uh, my friend at the time who played guitar at, at, at school, um, and we were the, the sort of two who were playing guitar together for the for the most part. We decided to try and write some songs, and I think they were quite basic. Um, I was definitely better at writing the music than I was writing lyrics or writing melody um, at that time, and I think I still am. I, 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 I can sit down and I can relatively easily create the music for a song, but the, the melody and especially the lyrics are a completely different matter. Um, so I don't know that it was any specific person or song or that inspired me. I think that was a, a more overall, I can't, I can't give you a defining moment like I could with pretty much everything else of like that song, I need to emulate it. I think, I think probably at that stage, if I had to pick one that was, that was really what I wanted to do. And perhaps, of course, it was that something that you could pretty much do by yourself, i.e. just me and a guitar. It was probably more than words by extreme. That was probably the song that maybe tipped the balance in terms of, well, if I could, you know, if I could sing that and play it, that'd be pretty cool. I remember learning that all the way through on guitar, being able to play the whole thing. I always struggled to sing it as high as Gary Sharon could. It's a tough song to sing, but it's a wonderful song. It's a very well-written song, too. As, it's, uh, yeah, it's one of my favorites. As, uh, as far as writing, when you do write lyrics, are you writing from more of an observational point of view, or are you writing for personal experience? Definitely from the observational point of view. Um, that is that's kind of a, th- a theme that goes throughout all of Empire's songs. Um if you take self-aware, actually, to completely counter what I've just said, My Bad is the, the opening song of self-aware. That is a song that is one of the few songs on there that's from a personal perspective and a personal perspective of of mine. And that's actually just about Did and I, Did Ali guitarist, arguing um, over any aspect of the band or, or whatever. Um, we were sort of going through a, a turbulent time and, and, and that's, what that was, but most of the songs, New Republic, Just a Ride, um, even to some extent, Only Way Out is uh, sort of, I wouldn't necessarily call it observational, but it's more a song about self-belief and solving your own problems rather than relying on someone to solve something for you. So, um, you know, if I take New Republic, we're not a particularly political band. We're not pro-war or anti-war or, or any of those. It's it just, we were commentating on the state of the world um, at the time or in our current time, basically, just bombs and guns and all that sort of stuff that goes on in different parts of the world at, at all time and has done for hundreds of years. Writing from an observational point of view, it's it's unique in that you can observe something or see something, read something, and you formulate how you want to present it and how you feel about it. 
have you ever, when you're writing like that, have you ever struggled to find, you know, the balance of how to present an observation that you're writing a song about? Yeah, it, lyrics lyrics don't come that easily um, to me, and it, lyrics I always find a struggle. That you could write something down on on paper, and this is perhaps perhaps you take anybody's lyrics, almost anybody's lyrics, and write them down on paper, and you could argue, well, that sounds cheesy, that sounds cliche. This is this has been written before there's, you know, there's nothing special here or this is generic. It just doesn't mean anything. And when did and I are writing lyrics, we're always battling with that and, and how to, um, whether it's an observation or whether it's a, a personal thing, it's like, how do you get it to, to sound right? How do you get it to flow right? And how do you try to counter all of those things where it's just cliche? Sometimes you can get past it by, if you've got a strong enough melody and a, and a good enough hook and a good enough song, it almost doesn't matter what you sing. It's more about those things. But we'd like to try and make our songs lyrically engaging as well. So, I mean, Homegrown is a is an example. Um, again, not wanting to get too heavy on it, but Homegrown is, is essentially a somewhat anti-religious song, but it's more about how religion in in uh, in various forms has instilled guilt into people to make them feel guilty about doing x y or z which perhaps in our own beliefs as, as empire that is just part of life or maybe some things aren't as bad as it made out not that everything about religion is bad by any means some of it is very positive so again it's not meant to be taken in that regard but to try to put something delicately um, and perhaps not obviously without forcing a point or trying to make uh, and trying to avoid us coming across again as like spokespeople. I'm not trying to be a Bono or Chris Martin from Coldplay or even Sting, for example, who have all been vocal and about politics or other, you know, world matters. That's, that's not what we're trying to do. We just write about things that we, we think about and go, oh, well, maybe that's a good idea or maybe that isn't a good idea. Oh, well, we'll write a song about it and then try to make it somehow meaningful. You mentioned, you know, the political aspect of certain songs by certain bands and you guys tend to stay away from that. Is it because you guys just don't want to involve yourselves in topics like that? Is it just something that you don't want to, you know, I don't want to say bother with, but maybe be involved in? Yeah, we don't really want to be involved in that. We're we're, we're trying to, we're, you know, to to make it uh, fluffy. We're, we're we're trying to be rock stars. We're not trying to be politicians or tell people how they should live their lives. We're just throwing a few thoughts out there, and it's more important for us about like we just want somebody to like the song, regardless of what it's about. If it's way more important if someone can relate to the song, no matter what we wrote it about, and and. Classic case in point is probably something like Stone and An Only Way Out. But for example, just today I was on Facebook. I had a busy, busy day and opened up Facebook and there's a, a, a picture of, of a guy who has had the opening lines to the chorus of Stone tattooed on him. I never, 
ever expected to see anybody tattoo a piece of uh, some of our lyrics. Um, he's also had he's also had part of the cover of Self Aware tattooed on on him, and it's like uh, this. It's it's hard to come to terms with in a very you know we're honoured, very complimentary, and uh, I, I've never met this guy. Uh, no doubt I'll see him at a gig um, at some point in the not too distant future, but. Uh, so, for someone I've never met, doesn't really know anything about me or, you know, knows the band from across a stage or across, you know, the, the airwaves and a CD at a festival, whatever it may be, that that has meant enough for him to go and put those lyrics that we came up with on his own body because whatever, however he interprets them is so important to him that regardless of what we wrote it about, it doesn't matter. We wrote a song in stone that is about the core character of True Detective Series 1, Rust Cole, played by Matthew McConaughey. It undoubtedly has nothing to do with why this guy's had it tattooed on him, but you know, I think that's what's amazing, that people should just remember that. Like, if a song means something to you, it means something to you, and who cares what they wrote it about, really? That's the way I've always approached music and any song that you know i go looking for meaning in songs as, as well but um i'm interested to know why you know axel wrote mr brownstone i find out okay it's about heroin well <laughs> i can't really relate to that but i like the song anyway uh, you know those kind of it, it's a very very um surreal and kind of peculiar situation to, to be in but amazing at the same time what's really great about empire is and i and i believe you guys are one of the best at doing this is create an atmosphere with the music to go along with the lyrics because whenever I listen to the music from you guys, it just, it creates like a, like you feel like you're in something. You feel like you're a part of something the way the music grabs you with the lyrics. Well, I think that's very, I think that's very kind, Jay. Um, it, it, It is certainly what we, what we try to do, and it's it's always great when people pick up on on elements of that, especially when you've never seen us live, as far as I understand. So to just get that from from a CD or Spotify or wherever you're listening to your to your tunes these days, and for that to come across just in a, in a room with nothing else than that to sort of manifest it. Um, it, 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 it's great that that, yeah, that that comes across. I don't, again, I don't really know how to, how to describe it. There are a few of the, the publications in, in the UK who've managed to sort of pick up on that thing that we're, we're trying to write songs with a big enough atmosphere to fill an arena, to fill a stadium. And, and there's no two ways about it. That's what we're aiming for. That is what we play the biggest rock festivals and, and venues we possibly can. And, we write in a way that we hope will fill those places with sound. Some people have been kind enough to say that even in the smaller venues, you know, you sound big enough to be on the big stages and, and wow, how big would we sound when we are on, you know, a ginormous sound system? Well, you know, I want to find out is basically it, but it sounds like when you say things like that about us being able to create an atmosphere that maybe we've got a chance of doing those things. So that's really kind of you. Thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. I just, yeah, I think that was the first thing that really I, I connected with was just the feel, the way the song and the music 
made me feel and then the lyrics presented itself and I'm like wow this is pretty like you know it just creates a whole different vibe to where you're at and wherever you're listening I think it can transport absolutely yeah that, uh, you know, that's a, that's a magical tool, isn't it? I, I don't I don't claim to have that magical tool. It's just that it's nice if it does if it does that. You know, that's, 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 you know, that's amazing. The album is the other side. It is basically you know an interpretation of your music with piano, acoustic, strings, whatever. Was this album? part of Empire's plan to stay in front of their audience because the album was released last year. You had the pandemic. You know, it, it was, it's difficult, you know, during this time, now that all this music's being released and people are getting ready to start playing again, there's a lot of great albums that were released prior to this year and people shouldn't forget about that music. And is this a way to kind of reinvent or kind of get back in front of your audience? It, it, it's a lot of things. Truth is, is that that album was, regardless of the pandemic, was already planned and already recorded before any of us went into any sort of lockdown or before even really COVID set in. So we recorded um, the other side uh, between September and December um, 2019. I've got to get my years right. It gets confusing when you've been at home for a year. So um, it was. It started out being a course of like, oh, we, well, we've recorded self-aware. That's coming out. How can we, as you're saying, how can we stay in front of our audience? What can we do while we write album two and try to promote ourselves and, and gig? What can we do that in that is not you know cheating the fans? Um, but maybe it's going to take us a little while to write a second electric album. And we originally thought we would release an acoustic EP. Um, at that stage, we'd already done quite a number of acoustic gigs. Half the songs were written acoustically. We'd played a few festivals where the, the first foot in the door was to do an acoustic stage, you know, a side stage, uh, perhaps while they're swapping over the acts on the main stage, and we were taking any route we possibly could to get in and, and in fact using it as a selling point and we and we still are using it as a selling point to get into some of the bigger festivals to you know we you know ask a festival you know we'll play as many times as you want for example because we can do the acoustic and we can do the electric if it's a big enough event so to get in front of as many people as possible but that wasn't really the the aim behind it on the on the festival and gig in front it was a case that we knew that we could do it we knew that we always like playing acoustically, um, it always brought a different element to the songs. Um, when, when I, around the time when when I really started to discover you know, Guns N' Roses and Pearl Jam, I'd go down to the local CD store and or cassettes or whatever it was at the time, and and I'd be looking for acoustic versions of, of the latest Guns N' Roses or Pearl Jam or Bon Jovi or whoever it was track. I don't know. I just really liked acoustic versions. I liked when it was stripped back. If it was live and acoustic, fine. If it was studio recorded, fine. But most of the stuff I'd find would be live. And then, you know, out of the blue, MTV just brought out MTV Unplugged. And I was like, I'm in heaven here. You've got Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, whoever else. Uh, Queensryche was another one I remember that. Um, 
and it's oh, there, there are all these uh, acoustic tracks. It was just ideal as far as I can, was concerned. So, did and I have always had that similar taste in some areas of music. We always liked the acoustic stuff, and we we've always liked MTV Unplugged. And and I suppose this is our homage to to MTV Unplugged, although it's not live because whilst all of those albums are great and all of those renditions of the songs are great, what frustrated us is that we went looking for acoustic albums and nine out of ten of them are all live albums. They're, they're just made up of live acoustic versions of tracks that the, the, the bands have done. So we were, well, um, let's go in studio record this. Let's make this as good as we can possibly do. And we put as much effort into it as we, as we did with Self-Aware. And it just happened just so happened that we had um, eight out of those nine tracks recorded before we went into the pandemic. Um, and the only way out the radio edit with the orchestration um, was done over the course of, uh, over the course of uh, a few months. And then we, we put the album together and, and we, uh, and we put it out. So, you know, we classed it as a, as a proper album, although, Strangely enough, we we don't call it album two because we still see that as a electric album. I think we see it as a as a compliment and a comparison to self aware. It's almost like if if you if you buy one, you should buy the other. The light and dark, the you know, um, and hence the the covers. One's light, one's one's dark, albeit the same songs. But I think they create a different vibe. I agree. It also, you know, it shows the versatility of the music you guys have written because I've always thought, and you mentioned MTV Unplugged, and it was always a pleasure to see those bands not recreate a song, but just give a different interpretation. And a song is so much stronger when you can have a different vibe and, and with a different approach. You know, you can you can play, you know, "Living on a Prayer" by Bon Jovi live, and then you can do an acoustic version, and it gives a whole different meaning or a different perspective maybe even a deeper um you know perspective on the song about what it's about maybe you hear the lyrics more maybe the lyrics connect with you more on, on, on certain aspects so it's it's really interesting when a band like empire does that and interprets something or has their audience reinterpret the song to kind of show its versatility yeah i would agree with that i think that that um Often the, the slowing down of a song, you, I mean, you take uh, Living on a Prayer, for example, and, and Bon Jovi, whilst they didn't do a plug, they did an evening with Bon Jovi, um, which was effectively a largely unplugged take on their stuff. And they did a version of Living on a Prayer there, which is, is a version that did and I played for years in the cover band that we were in. And because that's what we preferred not only could i not sing as high as john bon jovi to get through the, the proper version of living on a prayer we preferred their their acoustic rendition on it and i think it does it does bring something else you focus more on on the lyrics once the distortion um and some of those keys and synth sounds are taken away there's other elements for you to focus on or at least focus on more than you would have done previously when you look back at this past year and you know we are starting to see light at the end of the tunnel and the light seems to be getting brighter at least in some certain areas around the globe in terms of the pandemic and getting out and playing live and performing i know you guys have announced some tour dates you guys are going to be playing some dates here as the year goes on 
Are you getting a little bit more comfortable that this is really going to happen, or is it still a little bit unknown, or there's a little bit of uncertainty left yet? There's still there's still an element of un- uncertainty um, here in the UK. Yeah, we're, we're we are hopefully heading towards getting out of this um, this lack of gigs and and concerts and festivals and, and all those sorts of things. But uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's it's going to happen. I, I fully expect to be back inside venues this year. The big question for us at the moment are the big events, the the big festivals, and and whether they're going to go ahead because they're really calendar wise they're they're on our doorstep. They're, you know, there's there, there are some here in in the UK that have already cancelled, like like Download Festival, the, the biggest of all the rock festivals, perhaps in Europe, but certainly in the UK. And um, I think there are a couple of other ones that are maybe you know, it's tentative. I, I, I don't know whether they're going to go out, go ahead. I really hope that they do. Two years for a band like us um, without gigs and festivals is, is pretty tough because we're reduced to um, fighting for some radio play, fighting for some column inches in in the rock magazines round here and even with with, with stuff going on it, it's difficult for us to uh, to make headway and for people to discover us because most people will discover us through seeing us live or through word of mouth of one of their friends who went to a gig who heard us or saw us and then went hey you need to check out empire that's that, that's just the way it goes i don't think Music has changed that much over over the years. Yeah, people can still discover us on on the radio or on Spotify and iTunes and all those sorts of places. But it's really we need to get out in front of um, in front of crowds. So yeah, we've got a lot of dates. I think we've probably got thirty or so dates planned for the rest of the year, and and as early as our first gig will be the end of this this month. Um. We're quite confident that that's going to going to happen here in, um, in in Blackpool in the UK, which is going to be our one opportunity to to do a, a full band acoustic gig and play the whole of the other side. Um, but that's a socially distanced gig, you know, it's sit down, it's it's table service, which I guess kind of suits the Empire vibe and that MTV unplugged vibe as well, where a bit more civilized than your than your normal gig. Um, certainly the new normal rock gig uh, but uh, yeah you know we want to get back into those um, hot sweaty packed out venues as well <laughs> so, but that is a little way off yet hopefully come September when some of those are booked up hopefully we'll be we'll back to doing that what's also interesting too is because of the pandemic things did start to slow down and things, you know, really were, you know, I don't want to say at a standstill because people were still releasing new music and there were certain spots where you could play out, albeit small, small in scale. My question to you is, as we move forward, as rock music moves forward and with all the music coming out and the bands like Empire being able to play, where do you see rock music right now in terms of the health of it? Do you still think it's struggling? Do you still think it? There, do you think there's a resurgence? Do you think that you know you're, we're on our way? I tend to believe that because of all the new, new music and because of the bands that are out there playing or going to be playing, I think we're on 
the cusp of a resurgence. And, you know, the celebration of music, of rock music, I think is back. And I think that with all the new music that's being released, everything is starting to move forward and pull its way up. How do you feel about that? I, I kind of have mixed feelings on it. I don't, I don't know how, I can only take your word for how things are in, in the U.S. What, over the course of the last four or five years since Empire started, and it's by no means a reason why Empire started, did and I have been waiting to write our own music, focusing on the covers band, and, and then we grew tired of that and said, well, it's now or never, we're going we're gonna to write some of our own music, and off, off we're going to go. And this was sort of 2015, 2016, and it was 2016 when we started to take things seriously in the latter part of that year, on the Empire front at least anyway. So it just happened to coincide with um, a resurgence that had been bubbling for for a while, but it's still relatively niche in in the UK. Uh, I've got to say, I don't see too many twenty year olds or uh, or even perhaps twenty five year olds at many of the gigs that we do now. Realistically, I know that there's sort of music we play that somewhere as somebody once described it as the love child between Soundgarden and Pink Floyd, we're, we're dad music, you know, we're somewhere between that kind of muso prog to the classic rock, you know, dad rock, whatever you want to call it. I guess, um, in the U S you might call it what adult, um, is it triple a, is that what it's called? I can't, um, classic not, rock maybe. Well, it's something, it's something along those lines. And, um, what, uh, to be frank, what concerns me is that, that most of our fan base and most of the fan base of all the bands that we know who are up and coming are, are, are guys and girls who are 40 years plus old. And on the most part, you know, probably 45, 50 years plus. So how long can that last for? Just like we're probably all asking the question, well, how long can people carry on playing Led Zeppelin? On, on the rock stations and um, where's the space for the new bands and this is not me this is not me complaining because if there's a market there's a market and um, this is we're playing the music we want to play we just hope that it will appeal to a to a young crowd I think it's really hard to gauge at the moment because if you if you went to one of our gigs or one of the gigs of uh, you know you've had Scott from Mason Hill we're going on tour with them with, with them Soon, and if you went to a standard Mason Hill gig or a Bose Down Crows or a Massive Wagons, who are two other bands who are a little bit ahead of us and are up and coming in the, in the UK, they're the guys who are just you know playing Download for the first second time. If you went to Download, you'd probably see quite a big age range of people there. But whether those younger guys are coming to listen to our sort of music, I don't know. Um, you know how it is when. Um, over the course of the, the decades, that those certain age groups would, you know, you'd have you had the sleaze rock, then you had the grunge rock, and you started to get some new metal and emo and that sort of stuff. And each each year after those kind of ten years by ten years by ten years, well, the the crowd for that rock got ten years younger, if you see what I mean, <laughs> or you were yeah, ten years yeah, old. Yeah, no. <laughs> and and, and with, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And, and, and if you listen to, or if if you are a fan of music when you're younger, you're going to be a fan of that band forever. You know, I mean, you're always going to listen to what you loved when you were 
young, you know, when you were a teenager in your early twenties. Yeah. And what, what at the moment is, is I think difficult is for all of us bands to reach that new younger audience. That's going to carry it through for the next 10, 20, 30 years. I think some of the, the publications and I think some of the, um, rock radio stations are starting to get a little bit wise to the fact that they can't go on playing Led Zeppelin or only Led Zeppelin, ACDC and White Snake for the rest of, you know, eternity. As much as those bands are amazing, there's got to be more space for the new bands because if you don't make the new space for the new bands, who's, who's going to headline a festival? You look at Download, it's, it's Kiss, it's Biffy Clyro, and I can't remember uh, who... Um, who's, who else is going to be headlining next year? But it's like, well, Biffy Clyro are relatively new by the, you know, comparison to to Kiss. Oh, it's Iron Maiden the other night, I think it is. But you know, it's that's the old guard for the most part, apart from Biffy Clyro, who's a slightly different genre to where Empire might sit. And you've got then other bands who are perhaps more in line. Um, Kajira on the on the harder side, even pretty reckless. And there's a mix in there but I, I just don't know whether I'd ever you know hold the pretty reckless in the same regard as I hold Guns N' Roses as a headline for, uh, you know a headliner and that's no disrespect to them you know Taylor Momsen's a great singer they're a great band but you know are I they think Guns it's, Roses? Yeah, sure. well I think it's I think that's going to be determined by the youth right whether they feel how they feel about the pretty reckless or any other band I, I do believe that the tide is turning because of what's happened over the past year or so. Rock music, hard rock music, metal, and I've said this so many times on, on my podcast, always thrives when there's angst and anger. And mm-hmm. when you are locked down and you're 16, 17 years old and you're e-learning, you know, you're, you're at home looking at a screen, going to school, you're not around, allowed to be around your friends, you can't have fun, you get a little pissed and you get a little annoyed. And I think going into a pandemic, a kid may be listening to hip hop or pop music, but over time they need something to equal that angst that's within them, that, you know, that anger that's being created of, of not understanding what's happening or knowing and understanding what's happening, but being pissed that it's happening when you're 16, 17 years old and you're supposed to be out, you know, not having a care in the world and having fun. And I think that, is changing. I, I see it, especially with younger people here in America where there's more kids wearing rock t-shirts and not rock t-shirts of bands we all know and love, but newer bands, whether it's Dirty Honey or whether it's Greta Van Fleet or whether it's you know any of these bands that you know they're discovering that are becoming their bands of their generation. So I do think that the tide is changing. I, I, I firmly do believe that. Now, you know, what that means, you know, it's still too early to tell. But I think if if you want to bookmark this day, May 6th, and look at May 6th, 2022, I think by in a year from now, rock music is going to be in a w- totally different place all over the globe. I would, I would love to think so. And, um, and watching, I mean, you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned Dirty, Dirty Honey and, and Greta Van Fleek, and Fleet, and and yeah, they uh, two of the bands that are leading the way, especially so far as from a UK perspective. I think Dirty Honey is still not too well known over here, but Gretna Van Fleet they just released the album, and 
Um, I really quite like some of the stuff they've done. More than anything they've, they've done before. You know, Heat Above, uh, great song. But I, I, I like that sentiment you have of, of the fact that um, there's a, that hope that the, the teenage, the youth of today need need something to relate to on the angst front, you know, that, that Nirvana, that Pearl Jam, that whatever it may be, or whoever it is of this era, to kind of access, open the door to, to rock and, and, and walk through. Got to hope you're right in a year's time that it'll be in a, a better state. I'm not trying to make out it's in a, in a bad state. And no, I do. Yeah, no, we have this discussion all the time. No, I love it. I love talking about this stuff. Um, you know, wouldn't it be uh, great? I think perhaps those of us that are old enough, you know, look back on the 80s and 90s and what a time to have lived in so far as the rock acts that were around in the lineups. You know, you'd see the lineups of the festivals and you just think that's just unbelievable. How can you have ACDC, Guns N' Roses, Megadeth, Iron Maiden and Metallica on the same bill? How, how do, <laughs> what kind of world is it where that happens? You know, um, I, I hope there's some some more bands around that like that, and of course I hope for for Empire that we're one of the uh, the stadium fillers of the of the future. We certainly, as I said, we certainly want to play those those big stages. But it is for um, for the youth and some of the old generation of today to decide whether we ever get to do that. Well, I think it's coming, Henrik. I do. I, I, I firmly believe that. I think the music coming out over the last few years is too damn good. And I just think that it's it's connecting. It already is. I mean, I see it. I have a 16-year-old son that is always enthused about new music that he's hearing every Friday and is always into bands and, and checking things out and giving me new bands to listen to. And I and, and he's even, you know, he'll, get, he'll come home from school. Dad, I found another rock fan at school. You know, Dad, uh, I got this guy to listen to this, uh, you know, new rock album. You know what's really cool, Dad, is when I give – a suggestion to a friend of mine, they come back to me a couple days later and tell me how much they like it. So I think it, it is changing. I think, you know, when you're listening to music at 10, 11, 12 years old, and whether that's hip hop or pop, and as you get older, you need something more, you know, you need something, I think with a little bit more edge to it. And I think because of what's happened with the pandemic, it's, it's like the perfect scenario for rock music to thrive in. Uh, and I think you kind of hit on it there. It's that word of mouth thing. Yeah. If um, if your son's listening to um, a range of music and introduces just just as I described for me, like my friends bought a CD round or a cassette round, and they stuck it on and listened to it, and within sometimes immediately, sometimes within one listen, you know, it, it resonates. There's there's some substance there. There's something, whatever it is, a riff, a lyric. Uh, a melody um and that's that's really important so yeah long may that continue well henrik it's been a great conversation a great interview thank you very much for doing this thanks for having me jay really enjoyed it thank you good luck continue good luck with the new album and hopefully at some point you guys get over here to the states too i'd love to see you guys live <laughs> we'd love to come to the states you know it's it's on that list of goals it's, it's on the ambition list um, tough to get out of the country at the moment, but you know we, the ideal scenario for us would be that um, that we're able to jump on the back of uh, of, a, of a tour for a, for a bigger band and, and do a good number of um, 
shows in the States. I know we've got some supporters over there. We, I mean, we've sold copies of the other side for people who've ordered as far afield as, as the States. And that's, that's always a, a really nice surprise when I hear about those orders coming in and, and also people who've listened to us online and, and sent us messages. And, you know, the international community is, um, is whilst, you know, we can't travel, it's kind of closer in a weird way than ever before because of social media and, and the fact that it's just more accessible. So, yeah, to get over and play some shows in the U.S. would be uh, would, would just be awesome. Well, it's going to happen someday. I, I, I firmly believe it. So I can't wait to see you guys here in Chicago. Thanks, Jay. Look forward to it. All right, everybody, that is Henrik from the band Empire. Check out their new album, The Other Side, a acoustic approach, a stripped-down approach to their album that they released, Self-Aware. So check that out, and check out their, their website. Order the album. Go out there and find them on Facebook. You can link up to their website there at uh, empire.co.uk. Buy some merch for them. Support great music. Support this band. Once again, I'm Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Like, follow, subscribe, wherever you get your podcast. And stay strong, stay healthy. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. Take the wheel, I know you can. Run the road as fast as you can. the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, 
Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.